me this morning and open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 17. The book of Acts chapter 17. This morning, we're going to be talking about what it looks like and what does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world. How many of you know the scripture and verse that quote comes from? Anybody? Raise your hand if you do. Good, because it's not a direct quote. Okay, it's not, it's, not a digre- it's not a direct quote, but however, the principle is heavily, heavily supported that we as believers in Jesus Christ being left here in this world to fulfill a purpose of evangelizing the entire world <clears throat> is heavily supported in that, in that, the way, that w- the way that we do that, it requires us to be in the world, but to be very careful not to become like the world in that mission. So we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And yes, it, uh, it is not a direct quote from the New Testament, but however, it is, it is supported very heavily. And we're going to go through a few of those verses here this morning just to be able to illustrate that to you. Now, in the words of Jesus, what we have, I'm missing. Okay, there we go. In the words of Jesus, we have in John chapter 15 and verse 19, it says, If you were of the world... The world, the world loves its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus makes a distinction here that his followers are not of the world, just as he is not of the world. In um, John chapter 17 and verse 14, it says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus' prayer to his heavenly Father about his disciples is that he had an understanding that they were not of the world, just as he was not of the world. And his prayer was that God would not take them out of the world, but his prayer was to keep them from the evil one. Jesus wanted them in the world, but he wanted them to be, te- to be protected from the evil one, not to fall into the temptation of being like the world. He wanted them to remain sanctified and apart while still being in the world, fulfilling our duty as the church. And it seems that, that um, Jesus has an understanding about the tension that they would have experienced um, as living like Christians in the world in which they lived. They lived in a world that was hostile towards Christianity. They, they, were, they were preaching that Jesus Christ was, had died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And that caused a lot of problems for the religious leaders of that time. And so, so he understood that he did not want them out of that, but he wanted them in the midst of that while also being protected by the evil one. As we go further, that even the New Testament writers, they encouraged us to continue our relationships around the world, but they, were, they gave us very careful instruction to live in a way that pleases God and not the world. As we see in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 15, it tells us that we are not to love the world nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, listen to this very carefully. It says, I wrote to you in my epistle 
not to keep company with sexually immoral people. But listen to this. He says, I wrote to you in a previous letter, do not associate or keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world. Are you confused? All right, well, he clarifies this up. He says, he, says, um, he says, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with covetous extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Remember, Jesus' prayer is that we stay in the world. And Paul is saying, look, I want you to not keep company with sexually immoral people, but I don't mean the people who are sexually immoral in the world. I need you to stay in the world. And he clarifies it this way. He goes, since then, you need to go into the world. And verse 11 tells us, but now I have written to you not to keep company with, another, with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. All right, so he's saying, look, the people who are out there and lost and dying and needing Jesus as their personal Savior, you go to those people, whether they're sexually immoral, whether they're covetous, extortioners, drunkards, whatever it is, you go out to that world and get them. The thing that he's saying abstain from is those who are, who, who are claiming to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And he's saying those are the ones that you don't want to associate with. Those who are claiming the name of Jesus but yet tainting it as they're living their lives. And yes, that is another sermon that will expose whether or not the, uh, the honeymoon is over or not. <laughs> that, that was both kind of a joke, you know. But it's, but it's true. I mean, it, it is true. You know, we... Um, that is a command that we are given. Also, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 is one of my favorite verses. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and perfect will of God. That you may be, con this is, do not be conformed to this world. Being conformed is the easy route. It's just kind of like relaxing in your surroundings. It says, it says putting, um, you know, putting uh, gel into a mold and it hardens. It just takes the shape of the world. You know, we are, we are commanded not to be conformed to this world, but yet over and over and over again, Scripture is telling us, be in the world, but don't be like the world. And lastly, for this morning, James chapter 1 and verse 27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted by the world, unstained, undefiled like the world. So I believe that we can cer certainly say, even though, that, even though that the phrase, we are to be in the world and not of the world, is not a direct quote from Scripture, we can certainly say that the, that the principle of that is certainly backed up by what we find. We as Christians, our job is to get in the world, to reach the world for Christ, but we are to be very careful not to become like the world. And so we don't want to look like the world. We don't want to taste like the world. We don't want to be mistaken as someone who is, who is uh, a part of the culture of the world. So, so what does that look like in today's world. What does that look like for us? We're going to take a look at Acts chapter 17, and I believe we'll be able to withdraw some principles here from the example of Paul. You know, I, I, the, um, you know Paul was an apostle. He was considered to be the greatest apostle, 
And um, at least eight times in the New Testament, he offers himself up as an, as an example by which we can follow. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm offering myself as an example to you to, uh, to follow. And we're going to look at the example of Paul in this certain circumstance here to see how we should act and behave in a world. What does it look like to be in the world and yet not of it? You ready? All right, here we go. The first thing that we have to understand to be in the world and not of the world, to be doing the work of Christ in the world and not look like the world, is that first and foremost, we must be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we take a look at verse 16 here. It says, now while Paul, was, uh, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So if we can just back up just a little bit. Paul is waiting in Athens because he had been run off from Berea. He had been run out of Thessalonica. He was preaching in Thessalonica in the synagogues, and he was reasoning with them from the Scriptures. And he was telling them how Jesus Christ must come suffer and die and be risen, and to be risen again, and some believed. But those who didn't like what he was talking about drove, drove him and his friends out of Thessalonica. And so they went to Berea. And guess what Paul did there? He went to the synagogues and he went to the people and he began preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And as he was, as he was in the synagogues and he was teaching the Jews there, it says that they were more fair-minded, they were more open-minded to what Paul had to say. But word got back to Thessalonica, to the Jews there, and they said, well, you know, this guy Paul is over here preaching the same thing he was preaching here. Well, let's go run him out of Berea. He's like, well, that's exactly what they did. So they went back and they caused trouble for Paul in Berea. And then Paul's buddy said, look, look, Paul, why don't you go to Athens and we'll meet you there. And so that's exactly what Paul did. He hopped in a boat and he traveled for about 350 miles down to Athens. And when he got there, he's waiting for, uh, for, um, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him at this point. So as he is waiting, as he is waiting for them there, he's looking at the city around him. He's looking at it, and what does he find? He's looking around, he's seeing temples that are built, he's seeing idols that are being worshipped. He's looking around, and this is a city who's worshipping many gods, and it, and it causes his spirit to be provoked within him. And he was provoked at the fact that when he was looking around at these people and the citizens of Athens, because they were given over to idolatry. I mean, Paul is a Jew. I mean, he is of the tribe of Benjamin. If there's anything that a Jew would despise, it's idolatry. It's the worship of anything other than the one true God, Yahweh. And this, and this, this town was full of false gods that they were actively worshiping. And he was, he was provoked in his spirit. Now, I want you to understand this provocation that came upon Paul's spirit. It was, not a, it was not something that provoked him, that gave him a feeling of superiority over these sinners who were in Athens. It wasn't something that he was wanting, where he walked, walked through, the, um, through the marketplace and he put his nose up in the air as if he was better than they were. That was not the type of pro provoking within his spirit. It is this, this provoking did not drive him to feel to condemn these people, these worldly sinners, and to withdraw and to leave the town. This, was not what drew, this is not the uh, reaction that he got, but because he was provoked in his spirit, he preached the gospel. He looked around and he saw the sinful behavior of everyone around. He saw that they were worshiping false idols, false gods, and he was provoked in his spirit, but he was provoked 
to preach the gospel. Look at his reaction in verse 17. It says, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue of the Jews, and he reasoned with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. When he looked around and he saw the sinful behavior, he was driven to do something about it. And it was to go to reason with the Jews, to reason with the Gentiles, and also to go to everyone who just happened to be in the marketplace. Paul went to them. He went into their world for the purpose of preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection. So the example that we see here for us as believers in Jesus Christ, those of us who have truly repented of our sins and trusted on the work that Jesus Christ did on Calvary, whenever we look at the world, our spirit should be provoked. You know, our hearts should be burdened for what we see in the world around us. Whenever we look around in the world that we, in which we live, the idolatry that is, being, that is being practiced around the world, in our country, in our cities, Whenever we look around and we see the sinful behavior of the world around us, not only is it being encouraged, but it's being celebrated, our hearts should be, should be provoked to do something. Our hearts should be burdened about what we see. But whenever we are provoked, you know, what action should we take upon next? We should be provoked to do what? Preach the gospel. We should be provoked to preach the gospel in the world in which we live. Yes, whenever we look around, it seems like it's a, it's a far cry for us to do any good. But it doesn't really matter what we think about it. We need to be provoked because the gospel is going to be the answer. The gospel is going to be the solution to the problem of the world. And if we're going to be in the world and not of the world, it's going to require God's people to stand firm and to stand strong and preach Jesus Christ and the resurrection just as Paul did here. He looked around and he was provoked in his spirit because the town was given over to idols. We live in a world where there is sinful behavior all around us. And yes, it does provoke us. Sometimes it makes us angry. And we can sit around in our holy huddles in church and talk about how horrible the world is and complain about how things are and how things are, are not the way that they used to be. But that does not do anything to solve the problem. We must be provoked in our spirit, yes, but we must be active in going into the world, being careful not to become of the world, and preach Jesus Christ and him being crucified. That is what we must do. If we're going to be in the world and not of the world as God has called us to do, we must be faithful in preaching the word of God. And this must be done out of a heart of compassion. Yes, as I said, said, said earlier, you know, to deliver this mes message of truth, we need to understand that we look at those people, even though the sinful behavior, it can be so horrible and so abominable to God and so offensive to what we believe and the values that we hold. But we must understand, we must look at people as those who are held captive by Satan and they don't know what the true message of Jesus Christ can truly do for them. And we must look at them with compassion. Our hearts can be provoked, but not with anger, not with indignation, but with love towards people and to bring them into a right relationship with God who can offer forgiveness, that can set them free from their sins and grant them eternal life, and they can be with Jesus forever. The heart of compassion and a backbone of steel is what we need in the world in which we live. And you're going to need that backbone of steel with a heart of compassion to be in the world and not of the world when it comes to preaching the gospel. Paul was very, was very disciplined in doing so. Whenever he looked around him and saw that the world was taken over with idolatry. 
He was provoked, but he took action that would bring them to a point where they could receive Christ as a personal Savior. He wanted them on his team. He wanted them to join him in the missionary work that God had given him. Secondly, what we must never do, if we're going to be in the world and not of the world, we must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how important that is. That's why we are here. Secondly, we must never compromise. Never compromise. Never compromise your testimony. Never compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. Always be able to stand with integrity before your God and the people of the world whenever you are in the world and remaining out of it. Or excuse me, in the world but remaining not of it. To be set apart from it, to being sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul obviously knew where he was, did he not? Yes, and he, was, he took very accurate observations of the things around him. But it, but, um, and as he was preaching in the synagogues and as he was preaching to the Gentile worshipers and as he was in the marketplace there daily, day in, day out, he was approached by certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Verse 18 is where we are. It says, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, the, in, the intellectuals of his day, listen to what they said, said about him. They encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be proclaiming, a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because why? Because he preached Jesus and the resurrection. All right, now he was approached by the intellectuals of the day who called him what? An idle babbler. Okay? They were were telling him that what you're saying is not really making any sense. It's not really any good. It doesn't really add up to the intelligent conversations that we have. But however, what does this babbler want to say? In verse 19, it says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? It says, For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Now, in the city of Athens, remember they were worshipers of many gods, many gods, given over completely to idolatry. As we read further, which we will get into, they actually had a temple that was set up that had a plaque on it that said, The Unknown God. And it's almost as if they were willing to take in any god whatsoever, build them a temple, and be, be free to worship that. They were, they were probably looking at Paul as he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection as a possibility of having another god to add on to what all they already had and to be, be willing to build, build Jesus a temple there out of hands and make an idol so they could worship that Jesus as another small g God. So they were interested in hearing what he had to say, and it says, for all of the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear of something new. It's like they were willing to chase after and make provisions for every new idea that came along, which is possibly how they had all of the idols there that were set up. But they were wanting to hear Paul at least. Now, whenever Paul was taken to the council of Areopagus, something we need to understand about the council of Areopagus, this was the biggest platform that Paul could have gotten. This was the place to speak. This is where the most influential, most powerful people of Athens were. This is where, if you wanted something to be heard, this is where you went. This is... um, 
Uh, they were curious of his teaching because of what he taught, because he taught Jesus and the resurrection. He was a foreign, a foreign God. And they were looking for something to add to their God collection. Now, Paul, understand, he was given the biggest platform which he could preach, a position that was probably coveted by many people. This was a position that was, would identify someone as being famous or, even, um, or, have, or having extreme amount of power and influence over the world. Many people would have loved to stand where Paul was just to speak to, for the attention. And yet Paul, because he was preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection, they brought him forward and gave him this platform upon which he was able to speak. But to get there, do you think Paul compromised? No. He didn't, get to, he didn't compromise a bit. He didn't try to look like the culture. He didn't try to talk like the culture. He didn't try to smell like the culture. He didn't try to act like the world around him. He got there because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And the reason why Paul didn't compromise or try to make himself look good in order to get to that position before he was willing to preach, he got there and he preached the message that he preached simply because Paul believed and he knew that when he preached Jesus and the resurrection, it had absolutely nothing to do with with whether those people liked him or not. But he had an obligation to preach to them the truth about Jesus and him being crucified and resurrected. So he did not compromise his message, but yet he was given the biggest platform upon which he could speak and to deliver the sermon that he's about to deliver before the council of Areopagus. You know, in the, in the culture in which we live today, the current church model that we see today that seems to be very prevalent is we see that they feel that we must build a rapport with the culture before we will be able to deliver the gospel. For whatever reason, we must build a name for ourselves to gain a platform upon which we can stand before we are going to be obedient to the Great Commission. We're looking for a platform, and once we are famous, and once we are well-known and very well accepted by the world around us, then we can unload the gospel upon the, mes- on, on the masses and then see them get saved. The classic bait and switch, right? So, what, so what's wrong with that? Well, up front, it's just really kind of dishonest, isn't it? If we are the church, we're trying to, trying to act like the culture, be like the culture, and, and do what the culture is doing around us in order for them to like us and to receive us and to, and to hear us first. And then we flip the switch on them and start telling them about Jesus. It is just ultimately dishonest as well as faithless. You know, we have this idea, and we also see that, you know, it's even been taught. I even got, got one of the books on my shelves that I read. I was very disappointed at the fact that they were actually encouraging a type of a relationship evangelism. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where you have to build a rapport and a relationship with someone before you're going to, before, the, before you are willing to preach the message of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, I've got to get someone to be my friend first. You know, I'll visit with them a couple times, build a relationship. And then once ever I sell myself, once I, have, once I have proven to them I am good enough to be heard, then I will preach the message of Jesus Christ to them because I have built myself this platform first, then I can now present the name of Jesus Christ. The classic bait and switch. So we feel that we sometimes, with this kind of ideology, it comes with the fact that, look, I've got to make a name for myself before I can make the name of Jesus Christ known. 
I want to tell us something, something we really need to grasp a hold of. Jesus does not need your name. He already has a name. And it is the name that is above all names. And by the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He does not need our names. Jesus Christ has his own. And it's his name is what we need to be proclaiming. If Jesus Christ wants to give me a platform, then so be it. And if I want, and if I want to pursue a high place of fame and fortune, so be it. But however, whatever path that I choose to get there, it can never be a compromise. I can never compromise what God has called me to do. I can never compromise the gospel. I can never compromise the testimony that I live before the people. Jesus has his own name. We proclaim his name and never compromise the message that we are to deliver. You know, we don't want to be a church that feels that we must be received by the culture before we preach. We don't want to be a church that feels that, that, that we have to be liked and loved by the world around us before we preach. We don't want to be a church that believes that we have to entice the world before we preach. We don't want to be a church that feels that we have to be attractive to the world before we preach the gospel. And what I don't want you to hear this morning, it's not my goal to be hated or disliked by the world. That's not my goal. I don't, I don't want that. But what I'm saying is, is that if the culture likes us or dislikes us, if the world hates us or loves us, let that be the result of his church faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ without compromise and give God the glory for it. So if we're going to be in the world and not of the world, we must be a people who is going to be willing to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to look around and be provoked in our hearts and see people as the way God sees them, people who are lost and in need of a Savior and the fact that Jesus Christ and the resurrection is the answer and preach that message. When we're in the world and not of the world, we must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whatever opportunities are before us, whatever path that God has us on, in preaching the gospel we must never, ever compromise. Paul shows us here that he was in the synagogues. He was in a world that was full of idols that did not believe in Jesus and did not worship him. But yet he preached that Jesus was the Savior. And next week, since we're out of time this morning, to be in the world and not of the world, we need to know our culture. We need to know our culture. And we'll talk about that next week. But this morning, as we have our time of invitation, I need us to really consider what it really means to be in the world and not of the world. Are we living out that testimony before the world today? Are we faithfully, unapologetically preaching the gospel without compromise? And is the path that we're walking on, the path that we're living, is it, does, it, does it show that? Does it show that Jesus is primary in our lives? Does it shows that, that preaching his message is our number one obligation to the world around us. If we're living in the world and not becoming the world, then we will see just that. Let's stand as we have our hymn of invitation this morning.